0: What's up skeptics? I'm your host Zoe McDaniel and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. So it's currently midnight. It's 12:15 on Friday, August 12th. So I'm a little bit ahead with my recording and I'm very proud of myself. Um I don't have too much business to get into, so I figured let's just go ahead and get started. So I know that Pride month is June. But here in Charlotte, we don't actually hold our Pride festival until August. I was thinking that I wanted to do something that was LGBTQ plus oriented, and I landed here on this topic. So it's like, I do want to apologize for that because it's not necessarily a good topic to discuss. But it's important because while conversion therapy seems mostly like a thing of the past, it's still very much prevalent today. So with that, I am going to go ahead and give a trigger warning for this episode. Conversion therapy is essentially torture, so I know that this is not everyone's cup of tea. So I won't blame you if you want to skip ahead through some parts or even just skip the episode entirely. Um and so I wasn't like, oh, it's like pride celebration, let me pick a fucked up pride topic. I actually had this topic in my list of things and then I also just watched the new slasher film They Them. And so that was kind of what inspired me to talk about this. It's on Peacock. This is not an ad, but like maybe it should be. I literally bought Peacock so that I could watch it. So I'm not going to spoil anything, but I am going to kind of give my perspective on it. I don't think it was bad. It has mixed reviews. It seems like people either love it or hate it. It's got like 50% five-star reviews and 50% one-star reviews. I'll say it wasn't bad. It wasn't, like, mind-blowing, but I did like it. I think I liked Kevin Bacon's acting the most, and, like, before yesterday when I watched it, I would not have known who Kevin Bacon was because I'm so bad at knowing who celebrities are and, like, remembering actors and actresses' names. Like, I'm super out of the loop when it comes to that kind of thing. But I did like his acting. I felt like he was very... Very creepy. Like, he does a good job of being the, like, evil conversion therapist man. So I think it was, like, less scary in the slasher elements of the film and more scary in, like, the psychological aspects of it. But overall, I do feel like there could have been more gore. Like, I hate to say that, given that it's a queer film and it's about, like, LGBTQ plus kids going to a conversion camp. But if you're going to make a slasher film, I feel like it should just really be, like, balls to the wall. Like, it's a slasher film, you know? Like, I, I feel like there was, like, not enough deaths, and then the deaths that you see, it's, like, you only get to see, like, one axe swing, and then it's gone. And I'm like, come on. It's a little slow. It's, like, almost two hours long. But I was surprised by the ending. Like, I didn't think that the murderer was the murderer, so that one got me. So if you know me personally, you know that I have nightmares. And so I did have a nightmare because I thought that it would be brilliant to just start watching this movie at 1.30 a.m. and then promptly go to sleep right after it. So, like, honestly, I feel like my dream was scarier than the actual movie. Like, during the movie, there was only one moment that actually scared me, and it wasn't really what you would expect in a slasher film, and honestly, like the jump scares weren't even anything to be worried about, I would still recommend it if you're into slasher films um just because I feel like why not like why not watch it? Just don't have your hopes up super high unless you're just not maybe I'm just like desensitized, also it's slasher films, so like they can only be so scary, like you know what's gonna happen, but I don't know so. Anyways, I digress, and now I feel like I want to talk about my own sexual orientation before we get into this conversation, not because, like, I need to, but because I want to, and it's my podcast, and I am a queer person, and if you are not a supporter of queer people and that is an issue for you, then, like, cool, like, get out of here. Why are you listening to me right now? I am proudly pansexual, which means that my sexual attraction is not limited by another person's gender presentation. If you are a man, cool. If you're a woman, cool. If you're non binary, cool. If you're trans, cool. Like, if you're any other way that wasn't those that I just said, cool. Like, I don't really care like I, I guess like I care like I care about you and how you want to present but I it doesn't affect the way that I could feel about someone romantically or sexually I care more about human connection than how you present yourself and or which genitalia you have and I'm not trying to do that thing where it's like I don't see your the I like if you're trans like I don't see that that's not what I mean but that's how I explain it Some people don't use the term pansexual to explain this. Some people just claim that to be bisexual is to have the same approach as what I just explained. So, the logic behind this is that bi means two, obviously. And so, someone who is bisexual could be attracted to one, someone with the same gender as them, and two, any other gender. So, any gender that's not the gender that they have. And I understand that concept. However, I choose to specify that I'm pansexual, for now, because sexuality and gender are fluid. But I choose pansexual because I think for so long, many people, when they hear bisexual, have thought that means you just like men and women. And maybe that's how some people use it now. And maybe they use it the other way, like I just explained. But now that society is more accepting of different gender identities and expressions, I think for me, identifying as pansexual is a solid way to just distinguish for sure that I'm attracted to more than cis men and women. Also, I identify as a woman and I use she, her, they pronouns. So, welcome aboard. Welcome to my little queer show and thank you for being here. All right, with all of that being said, let's talk about conversion therapy. And we're going to start with an overview. So, conversion therapy is the pseudoscientific practice of attempting to change an individual's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression to align with heterosexual and cisgender norms. And so if you don't know what cis means, it's like, so I identify as a woman, I was born with female genitalia and assigned female at birth. And so that and because I am a grown woman, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a woman, like I identify as a woman, that means that I'm cisgendered. Like, I agree with the gender that I was born with. Or not that I was born with, but that was assigned to me at birth. And I follow those kind of gender norms. So here's a quote from the UCLA. Conversion therapy is practiced by some licensed professionals in the context of providing health care and by some clergy or other spiritual advisors in the context of religious practice. Efforts to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity are associated with poor mental health, including suicidality. So many doctors don't actually like to refer to conversion therapy as therapy because it's literally not therapy. So there are a few different names that they use instead, including Sexual Orientation Change Efforts, or SOCE, Gender Identity Change Efforts, or GICE, and LGBTQA conversion practices. And so just so we are aware, your sexuality refers to like your attraction, um, or that's how I'm using it in this episode, like your genitalia does not determine your gender. So when I think of sex in this context, I'm thinking of like sexuality, your sexual attraction, things like that, and then gender is like how you present yourself. So, like, I am sexually attracted to pretty much, like, anyone. Like, I don't have a preference. Like, I'm not just attracted to men or women or non-binary people. I don't really have a thing. And my gender is I identify as a woman. Um, But that could be different. Like, maybe I identify as a man and I'm sexually attracted to men. Then I'm gay. So, sex is referring to, like, your sexual orientation. Okay, I hope that made sense. And then if anybody has, like, suggestions, like maybe I'm not explaining things super great, I'd love to hear from you guys. Constantly learning, trying to stay up to date with the proper terminology. I am not, like, super on top of it all the time as a queer person, but I try my best. So varying forms of conversion therapy have been practiced in America for over a century now. According to the UCLA, There are documented instances of it being practiced as early as 1890, and honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if it had been happening earlier um, and just not being documented, or maybe it necessarily wasn't, like, characterized as therapy. Like, it's not, like, I feel like when you say therapy, it like, that word has, like, good intentions behind it, but that doesn't, that's not always the case. Um, I feel like maybe more along the lines of, like, someone, like, beating the gay out of you or something was probably happening before um, we decided to start approaching it with a, I'm putting air quotes around compassionate um, approach like therapy. In 2001, conversion therapy attracted a lot of attention when Robert L. Spitzer published a non-peer-reviewed subject-reported study asserting that some homosexuals could change their sexual orientation. And according to the National Library of Medicine, in 2012, Spitzer repudiated his study, writing there was no way to judge the credibility of subject reports of change in sexual orientation. So that sucks. (laughs) As of 2019, almost 700,000 LGBT adults ranging from 18 to 59 years old in the United States have undergone conversion therapy, and about half of those experienced this during adolescence, according to the UCLA. These next two stats are also from the UCLA, got a ton of great information from them, as well as the National Library of Medicine, the Human Rights Campaign, and a couple more sites that I'll obviously cite. So 16,000 LGBT youth ages 13 to 17 will receive conversion therapy from a licensed healthcare professional before they reach the age of 18 in the 32 states that currently do not ban the practice, which is heartbreaking and an estimated 57,000 youth ages 13 to 17 across all states will receive conversion therapy from religious or spiritual advisors before they reach the age of 18. So now that I've dropped all of that on you guys, let's talk about some of the methods, and this might be a portion of the episode where if you would like to skip ahead, I would just go ahead and do that right now. So common methods of conversion therapy include talk therapy or counseling to change thought patterns, reframe desires, or redirect thoughts. They also include hypnosis, visualization, social skills training, psychoanalytic therapy, and religious interventions. Some more intense methods that have been used include ice pick lobotomies, chemical castrations, hormonal treatments, aversive treatments, and masturbatory reconditioning. And I got that from Wikipedia and the UCLA. So I want to go into two um, of the methods. I'm not going to go into all of them. Like, you know, we can obviously imagine what talk therapy and like psychoanalysis is like. And it's, you know, basically just like gaslighting or like guilt shaming, um, all that kind of stuff. And then I don't really want to talk about chemical castrations, hormonal treatments, masturbatory reconditioning. Like, that's crazy. So, let's talk about aversion therapy. So, this can, it's kind of a blanket term for a lot of things, but aversion therapy was developed in Czechoslovakia between 1950 and 1962, and in the Commonwealth from 1961 into the mid 1970s. And Czechoslovakians actually concluded that the therapy was ineffective and recommended decriminalizing homophobia, but over in the West, we, I guess, ignored that. So aversion therapy can be executed in a few different ways. It all basically comes back to the same concept where erotic images of the individual's same gender or their assumed gender are shown on a screen and then They're, like, forced to look at it. They're sitting in a chair or, like, wherever, and they're being forced to look at this. And then they're administered electric shocks or forced to endure periods of freezing cold or extreme heat. Like, put them in, like, a a really cold ice bath or, like, I don't know. I can't think of an example of the heat. I don't think I saw one. I just saw people saying, like, heat. Um... Maybe there's like a fire nearby. I'm not sure. Or another form of aversion could be giving them vomit-inducing medications um, through like IV, which is just like terrifying. So basically, they try to train your body like a dog to be like grossed out or have negative feelings whenever you react or like the body reacts to the gender that you're attracted to. More mildly, they may have the individual snap an elastic band around the wrist when the individual becomes aroused to same sex erotic images or thoughts. That was a quote from Wikipedia. So like they said same sex. I'm gonna go and say like same gender. I don't I don't know. And then again, that's just for specifically gay people. Cause I know they you know there's people that are they're trans people that are in these camps that are by our standards heterosexual because they're a trans man like attracted to women and vice versa. Um, So it gets really complicated at these camps. Like they don't really completely understand it. I also think this elastic band or just rubber band, whatever, snapping on the wrist um, is a coping technique that people who self-harm have often used rather than like inflicting harm on themselves. They'll snap the rubber band on themselves. And I've seen conflicting perspectives on this coping mechanism. Some people think that like, you know, it's good, like Other people think that it's still a form of self-harm and it's still like a habit that you shouldn't have. I think as long as they're not just, you know, inflicting harm on yourself, like that's good. That's a step in the right direction as you try to get to a place where you don't have mechanisms at all. Like you don't need it anymore. Hopefully, ideally, I would pray for that to happen. I don't really feel like this is effective when you're trying to train someone to not be gay, but I guess if you have the choice between rubber bands slapping on your wrist and being electrocuted like that is obviously the better choice it has been noted that aversion methods may have caused a i'm putting air quotes decrease in homosexual feelings in people who underwent this experience and what i'm thinking is like maybe not necessarily a decrease in the hetero or in the homosexual feelings but like an increase in negative feelings surrounding the homosexuality It has not been seen, however, to, quote, increase heterosexual feelings. So here comes internalized hate and homophobia. Next, the next method I'd like to talk about is ex-gay and ex-trans organizations. So my understanding of this is that these groups consist of people who hate gay people, queer people, and and also people who once identified as gay or trans or queer in some way. And now, don't, so what I'm getting at is like like it's like in the name an ex gay or an ex trans person. They were trans, they reverted their transition, and now they're saying that they're cured, and they're in these groups, like as an example that conversion is possible. Not everyone in the organizations, I guess, was at one point gay or was trans or was queer of some sort, but it seems like that. There are ex-gays and ex-trans people in there, for lack of a better term. I don't really think it's possible, and we'll see some examples of this, um, of of people that were in these organizations that basically say it doesn't work. Basically, they teach that being gay or trans or any form of queer is caused by trauma, social contagion, or gender ideology according to Wikipedia, and Wikipedia also says that gender ideology has been described as an empty signifier or catch-all term for all that conservative Catholics despise. So that's a quote, and the idea of gender ideology has been described by scholars as a moral panic or conspiracy theory as it alleges that there is a secret cabal out to undermine society. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation of that word, but I don't care. The largest ex-gay organization in the U.S., Exodus International, supposedly ended its operations in 2013 and apologized for all of the harm that they had caused since its inception in 1976. So Exodus International was interdenominational, but mostly associated with Protestants and evangelicals. And they had over 250 ministries in the U.S. and Canada and over 150 ministries in 17 other countries. And it's, it's really scary to think that people just join these things and like spend so much of their time actively hating people that they join a club about it. Whenever I do cases like this or subjects or topics or whatever like this that are hate driven or not even hate. I mean, this one specifically is hate, but just stuff like this. It's like you joined a group about something that you absolutely despise when like you could like maybe just go do something you actually like. I mean, I guess that's the thing. Maybe these people actually like being mean to queer people and they like putting them through this, but it's always mind blowing to me. I'm like, why don't you like go do a hobby or like go volunteer for like people that like genuinely need your help. So, anyways, though the original organization closed down, many of the ministries still operate together. There's like another Exodus Alliance that they I guess made after the original one closed down, and then some of them are just like individual ministries. So, here are some scandalous events that I saw on the Wikipedia page for Exodus that happened, and I'm sure there's a ton more, but In 2009, members of Exodus spoke against homosexuality at a Ugandan conference, and then a bill was proposed in Uganda shortly after called, and I'm quoting, kill the gays bill that would make homosexuality punishable by death. And it appears that it was not passed, but there is still obviously cause to be concerned. This one was crazy to me, so... (laughs) Oh my god, I'm such a child, but I just looked at this guy's last name and realized I didn't... I didn't look it up. How to say it, but it's spelled B U S S E E and all I can think about is like Bussy. Like this may <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. So Michael Bussy, one of the found I'm a child, okay. Michael Bussy, one of the founders of Exodus and Gary Cooper, a leader within the ministry of Exodus, left the group to be in a relationship with each other in 1979. They divorced their wives and participated in a commitment ceremony in 1982. Bussie and Cooper lived together until Cooper's death from AIDS-related illness in 1991. So that's really sad. But, like, I mean, literally, one of the founders of this group and a leader within the ministry of it were gay. I don't know. I don't have to explain it. You guys understand it. In September of 2000, John Polk, who had been elected chairman of the Board of Exodus International in North America since August of 1995, so he'd been doing that for five years, he was identified drinking at a Washington, D.C. gay bar, and, like, someone confronted him, and he gave an alias and denied being, like, him, himself. But a photo was taken of him while he was there, and it was confirmed to be him. So it's just, like, this big group of gay closeted homophobic men and women or whoever, I don't know, I didn't see anything about women. It seemed like mostly men, but I mean, I'm not saying there weren't women in it, but it's it's like really sad. I mean, you want to be angry and like there's totally like the right to be angry when it gets into the torture and stuff. But like to think of like how large this organization was and so many people were a part of it that are just gay, or trans or queer of some sort. It really breaks my heart. Like, please just be yourself. I understand that like, not everyone's family is accepting and stuff. But like, it's possible. Like, like these specific people, they were going to gay bars and like getting married. So I don't understand why. I don't want to say that they were pretending. To not be gay, it was like they were, but like they weren't even just pretending. Like they're vehemently denying that they're gay and then inflicting that onto others, which unfortunately rallies the wrong people. And then that's when things start to get violent. It's really bizarre. So people who have been a part of ex-gay groups are now openly calling themselves ex-gay survivors. And here's an example. So, Randy Thomas, former Exodus executive vice president, said of Exodus, it was the first time I ever actually experienced community, honestly sober. So, it was in this place that I finally felt safe, even though it was toxic. That's one of the dangers of conversion therapy. It lures very wounded people like I was into its world, and it keeps us there. It's almost cultish in the way that you're roped into works. What? It's almost cultish in the way that you're roped into works and how you think and how you're rewarded with attention and love. And the limelight. It was intoxicating to be put on stages and do interviews and all this other stuff. It turns into this roundabout with no exit. And I got that from NPR. So basically... His story was that, like, he was openly gay as a child, and he was kicked out of his home, and he turned to, like, a life of partying, and then he found exodus at the church, and it seemed very subtle, and it wasn't like, oh, we hate gay people. And then once he was in it, it was, like, kind of too far in to get out. And I was reading some articles, too. I can't remember exactly which one, but it was talking about how there's a lot of these kinds of groups now that are, like, in disguise, basically. Like, they use very... um strategic wording on like social media and they're like led by millennials and they'll have like they even have little rainbows on their pages but they're actually like anti-queer but this guy randy thomas he was like he didn't realize they were spewing all this hate and whatever until his friend committed suicide completed suicide over it and i'm like damn like that sucks that it took you that long to like figure that out so next, let's talk about the lobotomy. So according to Wikipedia, in the 1940s and 1950s, U.S. neurologist Walter Freeman popularla- popularized the ice-pick lobotomy as a treatment for homosexuality. He personally performed as many as 3,439 lobotomy surgeries in 23 states, of which 2,500 used his ice-pick procedure despite the fact that he had no formal surgical training. Up to 40% of Freeman's patients were gay individuals subjected to a lobotomy in order to change their homosexual orientation, leaving most of these individuals severely disabled for the rest of their lives. Lobotomies are so interesting to me, and we're going to do an episode on them, and I actually almost did it this week, but like, I just watched that movie and I was like, I am doing this right now, conversion therapy. But That's a lot of people. 3,439 lobotomies. Like, I can't even imagine what that must be like. Like, you're literally sticking something into somebody's skull, like, through their eyeball, crevice hole situation. And to do that almost 3,500 times? And then I'm sure they don't all turn out exactly the same. Like, I'm really curious how many of them died and what the different outcomes were. Because you're literally just sticking something in somebody's brain. All I could think of when reading this information was the Netflix show Ratched, which I think I'm saying that right. I loved that show. Um, I watched it during the pandemic. I don't know if there's another season. I think I saw that it was like, originally signed on for two seasons, but it's, it came out in 2020. And it's 2022, and, like, we haven't gotten a second season, so I hope there is one. It might be triggering for queer people. Um, There's, like, a little women-loving-women storyline, though one is, like, not about it. She's, like, closeted. It's the 40s or something in the show, which is, like... Dude, what the fuck? I can't believe that was the 1940s and the 1950s. Like that's, ew, I literally just got chills. Like that's so not long ago. Like for some reason, I always feel like lobotomies were like 1800s and maybe they were happening then too, but um, yeah, because this says 1940s and 50s was when it was popularized popularized for homosexuality. So I guess it was happening before, but like I think of like Shutter Island and I don't know. I get super creeped out. Um, But yeah, so that's a good show. I really like anything that has like creepy, scary, old medical references. So, oh my God. And there's one episode where like, oh my God, I have to rewatch it. There's this episode. And if you know this show, you know the episode. I don't even have to even say a single thing. You know which episode I'm talking about. Literally fucked me up. Fucked me up hardcore. Yeah, like more blood in this like... 10-minute scene of this episode than was in the entire slasher film that I just watched last night. Go watch it if you're into that shit. So the National Library of Medicine kind of outlined some of the ethical violations with conversion therapy, aside from the straight-up abuse and torture that conversion therapy can be. Some of the more, like, I guess, following the guidelines of what distinguishes something as therapy. These are some of the ethical violations. So the first one is subjective informed consent. And an example is telling patients that homosexuality is a mental disorder because of practitioner beliefs. The next is breaches of confidentiality. And so this is like counselors in religious schools informing administration officials about a patient's sexual behavior discussed in therapy, sometimes leading to expulsion. The next is Improper pressure placed on patients, so threatening to end treatment if the patients do not submit to the therapist's authority, and then abandoning patients who eventually decide to come out as gay or lesbian, unwillingness to refer a patient to a gay or lesbian affirmative therapist when conversion therapy fails, indiscriminate use of treatment, or regardless of the probability of success, conversion therapists will recommend their treatments to anyone. And then typically low patient motivation rather than the skill of a therapist or efficacy of the conversion treatment is credited as the primary factor interfering with change. This is a setup for, quote, patient blaming, as most people who try to change do not. So that was all straight from the National Library of Medicine. So these are things that can, like, basically happen in regular therapy. They just have, they don't have to be associated with homosexuality like breaches of confidentiality, like abandoning patients for like disagreeing with your personal beliefs, stuff like that. So some of the effects that conversion therapy has on the individuals are intense. So that's the next section we're going to talk about. Um, I saw this quote in Wikipedia, a 2022 study estimated that conversion therapy of youth in the United States cost $650.16 million annually with an additional 9.5 billion dollars in associated costs such as increased suicide and substance abuse meaning like that money is 9.5 billion extra dollars in suicide and substance abuse related care treatment and then I guess for suicide funeral costs, so very unfortunate. According to NPR, researchers at San Francisco State University found in 2018 that rates of attempted suicide among LGBTQ youth more than double when parents try to change their sexual orientation, and increase even more when therapists and religious leaders also attempt to change young people's sexual orientation. And I guess this is like, okay, it's normal for your parents to, like, fight back on some stuff. It's not normal to fight back on being queer. But once there's, like, other figures of authority outside of your home that are trying to change you, like, that's a lot of pressure. According to Wikipedia, the United Nations Independent Expert on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity, Victor Madrigal Borlos, said that conversion therapy practices are, quote, inherently discriminatory that they are cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment, and that depending on the severity or physical or mental pain and suffering inflicted to the victim, they may amount to torture. So conversion therapy causes social harm by spreading inaccurate views about gender identity and sexual orientation, as well as exploits guilt and anxiety, thereby damaging self-esteem and leading to depression and suicide, unfortunately. So in the movie I watched last night, They Them, there was a scene where... I can't remember. I'm so bad about movies. Like, as soon as I watch a movie or a show, I immediately forget everybody's names and everybody's storyline. Like, I just, it's in one ear, out the other. But the main character, or like who I'm assuming is the main character, they are talking with like the counselor, and she kind of goes on this like weird rant and like almost makes them feel like they're siding with them. So she's like, I understand like how hard it can be growing up and not feeling like you get the right amount of attention and nobody understands you and blah 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 and then she kind of goes into like validating their experience as being trans and being like, you know, it totally makes sense why you would come to this conclusion. Like, I totally get it. I was the same way. The same thing happened to me. And then she completely like flips it around and she's like, "But don't you see that this is just like a a trauma response to the way that you were treated as a child and like this isn't actually what you really want this is just you responding inappropriately because you have unresolved issues and like it's this whole thing and then it makes the main character like at the end of the night they go back to their cabin and they're like crying and they're like oh my god like it got in their head and made them think like holy shit like all my life I have wanted to transition I have not wanted to be in the body that I had I didn't want to confirm to this gender and now within like a 10-minute conversation with this counselor, I'm, like, second-guessing it all and wondering, like, am I the root of all my problems? Like, am I causing myself this stress? And it's like, no, baby. There's a reason your whole life you felt different and, like, wanted to be different. It's because you are different, and, like, that's okay. It was... that. See, that was the stuff that was more scary and traumatizing to me out of that movie than the actual slasher stuff. It was interesting because I feel like a lot of times slasher films, it's, like... There's a boy and a girl in the woods and they're hooking up in the car and then the guy comes and kills them. So it was an interesting take because it was like conversion therapy is fucked up anyways. And so they were doing like all the psychological stuff. Like you see the aversion therapy. There's like people planted that work at the camp that are trying to like trick you there's like the one guy that's the exact he's an ex-gay he was gay he went to the camp he went through the conversion therapy he had the electric shock conversion therapy and like now he's straight so there was a lot of like that stuff was more like psychologically thrilling than the slasher part like the slasher part was like almost like an afterthought like i would get like invested in the storyline and then be like oh shit yeah like (laughs) people are being murdered so yeah According to the Williams Institute, this is a quote, Queer people who experienced conversion therapy show greater odds of having suicidal thoughts and attempts compared to queer people who had not experienced conversion therapy. So queer people who experienced conversion therapy show 92% greater odds of lifetime suicidal ideation, 75% greater odds of planning to attempt suicide, and 88% greater odds of attempting suicide resulting in no or minor injury. And then the National Library of Medicine has this list of potential harmful outcomes of conversion therapy. So, one is patients who do not change may feel worse and blame themselves, question their faith or their motivation, and this will lead to potentially depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. The next one is some individuals are encouraged to marry during a course of conversion therapy. So, their therapist will be like, you know what? If you just get married to a man or a woman or whatever, like you won't be gay anymore. So because of this, they may have spouses and children. And when they accept that change, like that they can't change, these families have to break apart or they don't have to. So that's another thing too. It's like they're forced to get married to someone that they aren't in love with because they think it will make them straight or whatever. And they either stay in it because maybe they're religious and they don't want to get divorced or like they don't want to break up the family because now they have children and like that's fucked up or they divorce and it's I mean it doesn't have to be tragic I know like there are situations where parents divorce because dad's gay now and like everyone's happy because the parents aren't fighting anymore and dad's happy and mom's happy and whatever but I mean it can be messy divorce is regardless of the situation divorce is a lot to go through. Especially if you're in a state like North Carolina where you have to, like, be separated for a year and then do all this extra stuff. I think in South Carolina you can just, like, get divorced. Like, it doesn't have to be that complicated. And then the last one is years of trying fruitlessly to change one's sexual orientation can delay the decision to come out as gay or lesbian. And when they do finally come out, conversion therapy, like, having that experience, this says it can be likened to a concentrated dose of anti-homosexual stereotyping may create intimacy and sexual problems. So now let's talk about public perception. In 2020, the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims released an official statement that conversion therapy is torture. So prominent national professional health associations, including the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics, amongst others, have issued public statements opposing the use of conversion therapy because it's harmful and ineffective. I think the Human Rights Campaign website has, like, this incredibly long list of all these different mental health associations and doctors and, like, celebrities and not that, who cares, but, like, people who have influence talking about the negative effects of it. According to the UCLA, only 8% of respondents to a 2014 national poll said that they thought conversion therapy could change a person's sexual orientation. And a 2019 national poll conducted by Reuters found that 56% of U.S. adults support making conversion therapy on youth by mental health practitioners illegal as compared to a minority of 18% who think that it should be legal, which is like, what the fuck? Majority support for making conversion therapy on youth illegal was observed across all age groups, regions of the U.S., and rural and urban residences. So that's really good news. Like, that's Really good to hear that it kind of covers all demographics. And that's from the UCLA as well. The remaining group of people voted that they didn't know. Like it was like illegal, legal, or don't know. And so they said they didn't know. Um, I guess they didn't have enough information about it to like make an informed decision. But I feel like just in general, the answer should be make it illegal. According to Wikipedia, sexual orientation disorder was removed from the most recent version of the international... Classification of diseases manual, so the ICD 11, after the working group on sexual disorders and sexual health determined that its inclusion was unjustified. So that's a good win. So now let's talk about legislation. So I have like a, it's not a fun fact, but like a, a random fact for the beginning of this section. So Being gay used to be a crime, I think most of us know that, and in some places it still is, but in the UK, at one point, gay criminals were offered conversion therapy, specifically aversion therapy, so like the shock therapy and the ice therapy, instead of prison time. And I think there was an episode, I don't remember which episode or topic, but we discussed someone who chose the aversion therapy over prison time in one of our episodes. I want to say it was like one of my episodes about like computers or data technology or something. It was someone back in like the 40s or 50s or something, but he chose aversion therapy because he didn't want to go to jail, and that's just sad. So an increasing number of jurisdictions around the world have passed laws against conversion therapy, particularly in like the last five or so years. As of June 2019, 18 states and the District of Columbia have passed statutes limiting the use of conversion therapy on queer youth. And those states are California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, um, D.C. It's not a state, but whatever. Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Nevada, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. Thanks, UCLA. Also, a number of cities and counties have passed legislation at the local level banning conversion therapies too. So these laws just protect youth under the age of 18 from receiving conversion therapy, um, specifically from licensed mental health care providers. These laws allow for licensing agencies to take disciplinary action against professionals that are caught administering conversion therapy to children. And so some states have even made youth conversion therapy, like the equivalent of an unfair business practice, which allows the law to enforce it and treat penalties for conversion therapy, the same as like false advertisements and deceptive pricing, which is like weird. I mean, I guess like, I get it. It gives me like snake oil vibes. Maybe I'll do an episode on that. But I don't know, doesn't it make you think? Like this is so America of us to have to make conversion therapy on children, aka torture, similar to like an unfair business practice in order to take action against it. It's like very very capitalism. In 2015, a New Jersey court held that providing conversion therapy in exchange for payment constitutes a fraudulent business practice regardless of whether it's used on youth or adults. And that's from the UCLA again and this is very interesting to me because it brings up one lovely little thing that's very important and that is consent. So we're going to play devil's advocate for a little bit because I feel like I haven't had one of these kinds of like weird questionable self rambles on the show in a minute. Um I don't know if other states have laws against conversion therapy on adults aside from New Jersey. There might be, but I thought this was interesting. So, I understand that conversion therapy is incredibly ineffective, very harmful, the whole negative nine yards, right? And it's even more fucked up to subject children to these practices. And that's not, like, what I'm questioning. That should stay the way it is. We should not be putting children through fucking conversion therapy. Like, that's just, you know, into sentence, whatever. But to play devil's advocate, why can't consenting adults enroll themselves in a conversion therapy program? I mean, in some states, like, legally they can. And I understand I understand that we can't just have licensed doctors and therapists out here practicing conversion therapy. Because it's a pseudoscience, it has been proven ineffective, and it has been proven to literally be incredibly harmful. And, in my opinion, to practice with a license and be like, I'm a doctor, I'm a therapist, and I'm going to give you conversion therapy... I think that goes against the Hippocratic Oath, but hear me out on this one. So I'm like, what if you categorize it as like a form of like holistic healing or like alternative medicine? And I don't personally think conversion therapy constitutes as either of those, but for the sake of this argument, I'm like, I'm getting worked up. I should have been on like a debate team because like, I don't even agree with this, but I'm like, but what if, like, what if this is what somebody wants? So just think of it like for the sake of my argument, like I'm just kind of bucketing conversion therapy as like an alternative medicine or healing practice. So like, what if there's an adult that like doesn't want to be gay or queer or trans or whatever, like why can't they go find someone that specializes in helping people not be gay? And I know it's probably because the studies have proven it doesn't work and causes harm. And it's also literally torture in some respects, like if you have the physical kind. I honestly think the talk therapy could be too, Um, as well as like the ethical violations that we discussed earlier from the National Library of Medicine, because you never know what effect this is going to have on you psychologically. Like, I guess maybe that's the issue, like you know, oh, I am consenting to go be in conversion therapy and I don't think it's going to be that bad. But then I go and it's like the most traumatic thing ever. And I like am super fucked up from it. And I'm like, well, I didn't know it was going to be that bad. So like, I guess that's why. But then again, what about the people who like to be tortured? What about the people who like to be punished a little bit? Like, are we venturing into that world of kink and BDSM? Like back to the episode two McKamey Manor. Was that episode two? I think it was. Like, some people might be into that, like, into degradation. And obviously, like, I think at that point, you would just take it to, like, a kink space, like, a kink-friendly space and not actual conversion therapy. I don't know. I'm just rambling. But it's a touchy subject, obviously, because at the core of it, like, I know that conversion therapy is awful and causes so much harm. And, like, I do not think that people should be doing that. But why can't a consenting adult have that if they want it? And I'm just going to leave it at that. So according to the UCLA, the CEO of the American Counseling Association submitted testimony to the Illinois House and Senate in support of the state's conversion therapy ban bill in 2015. ACA members sent 79 letters to the governor and 84 letters to state legislatures in support of the bill. Also, several professional health associations endorsed the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act, which is a federal bill that would have prohibited the practice of conversion therapy including the National Association of School Psychologists, the American Psychoanalytic Association, the American Counseling Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I looked this up, and according to the Human Rights Campaign, the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act would officially classify the provision and advertising of conversion therapy in exchange for monetary compensation as fraudulent practices. So while the Federal Trade Commission already has the authority to prohibit this form of consumer fraud, the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act would expressly direct the FTC to protect consumers from these harmful and discredited practices. It has not been passed yet. Another act is the Prohibition of Medicaid Funding for Conversion Therapy Act and the Every Child Deserves a Family Act prohibits Medicaid programs from covering conversion therapy. Um... This has not been passed yet as well. I just don't understand why some of these aren't more intense. Like, some of these therapies are, like, very abusive and, like, very fucked up, and they're, like, not, like, these laws and bills aren't quite as, like, intense as I feel like they should be for, like, mistreating children. While all of these laws are focused, like I said a little bit ago, at licensed medical professionals, and maybe like more generally anyone who's taking payment for conversion therapy. So if I was just like, let me put an ad in the paper and like be a conversion therapist. Um, but these laws do not prohibit people administering conversion therapy within their pastoral or religious capacities. So basically religious people are protected. And that's what I think a lot of these conversion camps are, is they're like religious camps that are anti-gay. So oops, I lost my place. Okay, so the next Thing that we're at is help and resources. So, the National Library of Medicine offers these recommendations as we progress forward with regulating conversion therapy. So, they think that regulatory bodies should develop guidelines to deal with complaints from adults who've been harmed by conversion therapies since there's not much legislation protecting them. And as it's more likely that states will continue to ban conversion therapies for minors, regulatory bodies should also create easily accessible mechanisms for the public to register complaints for minors. And then the bodies whose members do not have expert knowledge about conversion therapies should seek expert consultation when managing complaints about them. And finally, regulatory bodies should develop appropriate guidelines on how to sanction licensed practitioners of conversion therapies. And then I found this while I was researching. Um, I actually didn't watch it, but there's a I guess Netflix documentary called Pray Away. And it's a documentary where they basically – I think the main focus of it was Exodus International and, like, how fucked up the organization was and, like, conversion therapy in general. And they have a website, which I will have in the show notes, that has resources for people who may be triggered by watching that documentary or have been through conversion therapy and they need help, resources, community, they need any sort of emotional support. And so I have that in the show notes, but I'll read you a couple. Okay, so Trevor Lifeline is a crisis intervention and suicide prevention phone service available 24 7, 365. You can call 1 866 488 7386 or text START to 678 678. And Trans Lifeline is a trans led organization that connects trans people to the community, support, and resources they need to survive and thrive. Available 7 a.m. to 1 a.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time, 9 a.m. 3 a- to 3 a.m. Coastal, I don't Central Standard Time, and then 10 a.m. to 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can call at 877-565-8860. There's probably like 50 different resources on here for different things. Like if you're looking for support, if you're looking for specifically people to help you work through conversion therapy, if you're just looking for a hotline, like it's all there and available for you. So I'll have that linked as well. So my last bullet point is a little random or my last two bullet points. So the first thing I was thinking about was the LoHanthony effect because I feel like I've been seeing that in social media recently, but I know if you know who LoHanthony is, I think he's like my age. He might be a little bit younger than me. Um but he was like a a previously gay social media influencer who recently like came out with a video spewing like anti-gay sentiment and Like, a lot of people were very confused, like, all his fans and followers, because he was very much, like, flamboyant and, like, this just, like, cute little sassy gay kid on the internet. And, like, I didn't really keep up with him a lot, but I remember there was, like, one or two videos I watched when I was in, like, middle school. But all of his followers were very confused. A lot of people who watched the video were, like, this is very much the kind of stuff that you learn when you're in, like, a conversion therapy. And he is like, claiming to have found God and, like, spent the last 10 years of his life, like, whatever. So if you look up Lohanthony, like, the first thing that comes up is the Lohanthony effect. But I couldn't find anything, like, specifically describing, like, what that is. I think it's just an example of, like, maybe he's just a good example of someone who is going through conversion therapy right now. And, like, I don't know. It's kind of sad. I don't have, like, really a conclusion on it. I just thought that was, like, if anyone knows who Lohanthony is and doesn't know that that's going on, like, I guess we can... Keep an eye on it and see, like, hopefully he's okay. Next, the last thing on my list is conversion therapy as a kink. Because I was thinking about what I said earlier, um, and I was like, I need to look into this some more. So I looked into this, and I found an article written by a therapist discussing how many people are actually super kinky. Though tons of therapists are, like, like, they don't look at someone who's, like, kinky as... Being a healthy person who just has some kinks, like a lot of times therapists will be like, oh, there's something wrong with you. Like, you shouldn't like being, you shouldn't like pain. You shouldn't like being hit. You shouldn't have that kink. Like, you're super weird. So, a lot of people don't, it's hard to find a kink friendly therapist. So, some therapists will try to like convert their patients away from the BDSM lifestyle as they think that there's like underlying issues that need to be solved that cause them to enjoy kink. And I think it's very possible that there are underlying causes as to why people are into kink. Like, I mean, that's basic knowledge. Like, people who have been sexually abused and sexually assaulted or, like, things like that as a child typically grow up to be hypersexual. And that's not always a bad thing. Like, process the trauma that happened as a child. But, like, if someone is being safe and, like, is aware of the situation, like, why can't they be hypersexual? Like, let them be hypersexual. So, I like, maybe there. I don't think that every single person who's into kink maybe, like, had some sort of traumatic event happen to them. But, like, if they did, like, so what? Work through it, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be into kink. Like, just process the root of it and then let people be kinky. Like, there are so many more kinky people than society may allow us to think. And, like, now that the internet is very what it is, I think it's obvious to see. So, like, why not just accept that there's, like, a fine line between pleasure and pain that can be fun to dance across. I also watched this YouTube video by What's the Safe Word or What's the Safe Word. It's W A T T S. Um, And they talk about mental health, kink, and conversion therapy with therapist Mr. International Leather Ralph Bruno, who underwent conversion therapy and is gay, kinky, happy, living his best kinky lifestyle. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. It was just interesting to listen. I don't really have, like, a ton to bring from it. But he talked about being openly sexual and successful. And he said it's not for everyone, but he likes being an example of that. And I was like – Like, my heart, like, that was, like, a hug to my heart because I agree. Like, I love that. I feel like that's something, like, I've been trying to do more now than ever. Like, I'm tired of hiding that I am this, like, wild, fun, sexual creature while also still being incredibly intelligent and passionate and business-minded. Like, I can be all of those things, and I can be sexual and successful, so... Thank you, Mr. International Leather. I appreciate your sentiment. That's all I have for you today. I could have gone a lot more into that, but I felt like that was like a good healthy dose without getting like a little too crazy because I don't want to just talk about sad gay people. Like I don't want to bring that... I mean, we have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge it, but I didn't want to like bring it super low. So I think I'm going to wrap it up there. And then I will... See you guys next week. I was like, am I gonna let them know what's happening next week? I don't know. Um, you can follow me at Prof. Skep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can email me at professional skepticism podcast at gmail.com. You can support the podcast through the link in the show notes, as well as on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash profskep podcast sorry I had a brain fart um the link to the the link in the show notes if you support me there it's not the same as patreon it's like you don't get anything from that it's just like a donation oh yeah join the patreon I'm doing monthly ask me anythings um there's four tiers like I said there's the supportive skeptic the suspicious skeptic the professional skeptic and the sexy skeptic and they um The Support of Skeptic is just a donation tier. Everything else, all those tiers, you get the Ask Me Anything, you get a fan shout-out, and you get requests, um, so you can, like, request episodes, but I'm going to do every month at the end of the month on the last day, I'll do, I'll answer the questions, and then on the first of the month, I'll, like, put the post back up, so you can go on there and submit your questions, and I also have a poll up there right now, so I'll be posting some stuff about it, but... Anyways, I love you guys. Stay sus skeptics. I'll see you next week. Bye.